If I haven't met you yet, my name is Dave Dorst, one of the pastors here. And I don't know if I'm becoming more Christ-like necessarily, but I think I'm becoming more Dr. Dave-like. Um, I'm actually going to structure my sermon a little more like his. I'll start with their scripture reading. And I have blanks in the outlines, you might have noticed. So, so speaking of, of Dr. Dave, um, some of you might have seen his post on Facebook that he was uh, walking home from dropping off a car in Leesburg, downtown, and um, started to rain really hard. And uh, he said he was fine, but the fact that three people from our church passed him and didn't stop. I don't know who would do that, but I'm, I'm pretty sure actually I was one of them. Um, which is great when, keep that in mind as we read the scripture passage, okay? I didn't see him. Sorry. Let's turn to Matthew chapter 25, the last story section, passage, uh, Pericope in Matthew 25, verses 31 through 46. When the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the angels with Him, then will He sit on His glorious throne. Before Him will be gathered all the nations and He will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and, and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you? Or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you? Or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and you did not welcome me, naked, and you did not clothe me, sick and in prison, and you did not visit me. Then they also will answer, saying, Lord, when did we not see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister to you? Then he will answer them, saying, Truly I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. 
grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Let's pray. Lord God, give us ears to hear, eyes to see what you have in this scripture passage. It is a difficult text. Cause many to stumble and to misunderstand. But teach us with the whole counsel of Scripture so that we will understand. In Jesus' name, amen. I remember an assignment I had when I was in high school. One of my English classes, we were studying Dante's epic poem, The Inferno. I don't know if you remember this. You remember the story? It's about Dante being taken through hell by the Roman poet Virgil. And it's all about who and what they encounter at each level of hell. According to Dante, there are nine levels, and there's kind of subdivisions throughout. So on the first circle of hell, for instance, uh, are the virtuous pagans who died without knowing about Christ. And the second circle are those whose major sin was lust. And the third circle is the gluttonous, etc., all the way down. And each level has a punishment. Uh, the fifth circle contains the wrathful who must spend eternity struggling with each other in a swamp. And the seventh circle has the violent who are punished by spending eternity in a river of boiling blood. And the lowest level of hell is reserved for those whose sin, major sin was betrayal. And so at the absolute lowest level, Dante sees Lucifer, Satan, waist deep in ice. And he has three heads who are each eating three of history's greatest betrayers. So we have Cassius and Brutus who betrayed Julius Caesar and then Judas, who betrayed Jesus. So thank you, Dante, for that very non-biblical details of, of what hell might be like. But the assignment that we had, sort of a reaction paper, was that we were to make up our own versions of hell and assign whomever we wanted at the different levels I mean, who? it was our chance to say who we would punish, who we don't like, and who annoyed us. It was, all, it was presented, presented very tongue-in-cheek, okay? Uh, people who use the word literally incorrectly. I remember that was one of her examples, being an English teacher. People who cut in line would be probably down a few levels. People who made up standard tests. I, I mean, it was very tongue-in-cheek. And I honestly don't remember uh, much about what I put on there. Um, but I'm pretty sure the Dallas Cowboys and the Cleveland Browns did not fare very well in my version. I doubt anyone could get away with assigning that in a public school today. Um, but it got me thinking. And I don't know if this was what it was designed for. Maybe it was just... Wink, wink, who would ever believe there's actually a hell? But it got me thinking, is that a good thing or a bad thing if I were actually able to decide someone else's fate? 
if my criteria were the standard for judgment, for how someone would fare for the rest of eternity. It's actually kind of a scary thought. But unfortunately for us, other people's eternal destinies are not up to me or to you or to any person. There's, there's ultimately one judge of humankind. And today's passage in Matthew reminds us that God alone has the wisdom and the criteria to assign people to their eternal destiny. This passage is the very end of what we call the Olivet Discourse. The Mount of Olives is chapter 24 and 25, uh, chapters that are dominated by Jesus' teaching on the end times. And this is, in a sense, the climax of all these parables that Jesus has been given. It's really the last sermon Jesus has in the Gospel of Matthew. It's going to be all action from here out. And so maybe, just maybe, he's got saved something pretty important for the end here. Now people have called this a parable. You might have heard it referred to as the parable of the sheep and the goats. But it's not really a parable, is it? The other parables begin by saying the kingdom of heaven is like, and then they tell a fictional story that has parallels to the truth, but it's, it's still fiction, right? The sheep and the goats is more of a glimpse into the future, a description of what's coming, of a true event. If you want to hear a very memorable musical version of this scripture passage, uh, you need to look up Keith Green's The Sheep and the Goats. R.C. Sproul comments that probably the three most hated doctrines in Christian theology, ready? Hell, predestination, and the last judgment. And he said if, if you had two of those, that makes for a difficult passage. But actually this morning we have all three. Uh, we're not going to talk about predestination much. It's, it's faint. But um, if you're reacting negatively to this passage already as we read it, you are not alone. But we need to understand this passage, as we do all Scripture, apply its truth, not avoid it and wish that it wasn't there. So let's start looking closer at the text. And when we do, we see that Jesus declares in no uncertain terms that there will be a judgment. Verses 31 through 33, there will be a judgment. Let me read those verses. When the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the angels with Him, then He will sit on His glorious throne. Before Him will be gathered all the nations and He will separate people one from another, as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on the left. Now this is not Jesus presenting some hypothetical situation. The nations will be judged, which means everyone at all times will stand before God. And according to this passage and other passages like John 5 and Acts 17, that judge will be Jesus. 
the Son of Man, the Son of God, God the Son. And there are real consequences to His judgment, but only two possible outcomes. Eternal life in heaven or eternal punishment in hell. And Jesus' judgment will be final. There is no appeals court. And this is not a new concept in Scripture. This is not an isolated idea or theme. It's all over the place. We have it in the Old Testament, in the prophets, Ezekiel, Isaiah. It's all over the New Testament. Luke 12, Romans 14, 1 Corinthians 3, 2 Thessalonians 1, 2 Peter 2, Jude, and Revelation 19 and 20. I hope you weren't trying to write those down. But it is all over the place. And we need to ask ourselves, how do I feel? How do you feel about the idea of every person being judged? I mean, if most of us were honest, I think we'd say that it's a great idea that the Nazis, the mass murderers, gang members, they're going to be judged. That's a good thing. They're really bad. But my friends being judged? Grandma being called to account for her sins? Mr. Rogers standing before God? That's, that's a little harder to grasp. All people. Do you know all of the people that have jurisdiction over you in this life? I mean, we all know the president's name. Hopefully you know who the Virginia governor is and the Leesburg mayor, wherever you live. But do you know your district supervisor, uh, your state, federal congressman, judges, sheriffs in your district? I mean, maybe if you work in, in politics or when the elections roll around, uh, you know. But for the most part, many of us are unaware of all the people who have authority in our lives, who have a jurisdiction over us. And I'm trying to make the point that many people don't recognize the Lord's authority in their lives. And there's somewhat the attitude of, well, if I don't believe in God, then I don't have to do what the Bible says. I don't, I, he can't judge me if I don't believe in Him, right? And how shocked they will be on that day when they realize that God has been in charge of the universe all along. That He's been their authority every second of their lives. And whether they acknowledge that is quite beside the point. I mean, just because I don't know who my senator is doesn't mean he can't pass a bill that affects me. If I don't recognize the sheriff's authority, he doesn't really care when he catches me breaking the law. God is judge and the highest authority in every human life, whether anyone recognizes it or not. So now that Jesus has asserted the fact that there will be a final judgment, he then tells us that the first group of people being judged, the sheep, receive praise and receive a reward. And it's because the righteous have evidence that their faith is real. 
verses 34 through 40, the righteous have evidence that their faith is real. Let me read those again. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you? Or thirsty and give you drink? When did we see you a stranger and welcome you? Or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these my brothers, you did it to me. I hope that you want to hear those words in verse 34 as badly as I do. Come, blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom. Or as the last parable from last week's sermons earlier in the chapter, well done, my good and faithful servant. I want to hear those words. They give me hope. And so if we desire to hear those, we need to understand what Jesus is commending and praising. A few notes on what he's commended here. I don't know if you noticed, but everything he mentioned is a very ordinary thing. An ordinary action, thing that everybody can do. Making a meal, visiting someone, practicing hospitality. Uh, there's a note in my Bible that making coffee for Sunday morning and bringing it, it counts as giving drink to the thirsty. That may not be in your Bible. But there's no list of amazing things that only a few of us can do, right? It's not church planting or casting out demons or organizing a 501c3 or a fundraiser or performing a concert. It's not something spectacular. These are everyday activities that everyone should be able to carry out. But it's important that we notice that all these things take effort and are only accomplished by our physical presence. There's a word you might have heard by now called slacktivism. You know, I, I like that word because you know, it's putting together slacker and activist or activism. And the idea is that clicking a like button on Facebook for a good cause or signing a petition, or buying fair trade coffee, or writing a check is good enough. That's doing my duty to help other people. And all of those things are good. That's great if you're doing them. They're pretty easy. Jesus loves when we show up. When we inconvenience ourselves and make others' lives a priority. And I think it's very interesting, very telling, that neither the sheep nor the goats know exactly what Jesus is talking about when he says that they did or didn't help him. Right? 
Both groups answer the same way. Uh, when did that happen? Because we, we don't remember. We, I think we would have recognized you. We would have remembered helping you out or passing you by. Jesus says that you did it to me when you did it to my brothers. He identifies so strongly with his people that when we treat one of them well or poorly, it's as though we've treated him that way. I think we can identify with that. When someone helps my children or my wife, I feel like they've helped me. If someone hurts my children, I feel hurt as well. And there's a debate about whether that phrase, the least of my brothers, what exactly that means. Does that refer to all the poor and hurting everywhere? Or is it specifically believers, other fellow Christians? I think the evidence, uh, the majority report of church history, is that it means believers. Jesus has already said in Matthew 12 that his brothers are those who do his will. Jesus identifies with them. And this, this changes a bit the way I've traditionally heard this passage taught. Um, when we see it as a test of how people treat believers who need help, we, get, we put a lot more emphasis on helping the persecuted church or ministers, uh, people ministering under difficult circumstances in other countries, whatnot. But I don't think that means we're allowed to ignore the poor who are unbelievers. I don't think we can go that far. We don't get to just walk by until we see a baptism certificate or a church membership list. Right? First of all, we don't know who's a believer and who's not. And secondly, the rest of the Scriptures teach us to help anyone in need to reach out to the poor. The Good Samaritan parable alone should remind us that we have a duty to anyone because we can, should consider them our neighbor. And we should do what we can to help. John Calvin said, So then, whenever we are reluctant to assist the poor, let us place before our eyes the Son of God to whom it would be base sacrilege to refuse anything. If we could see Jesus in people, we could see them the way God sees them. We wouldn't be so quick to avoid them or judge them. We would rush to help them and love them. There's a story about Francis of Assisi who grew up privileged and had always looked at lepers with disgust. But one day, as he rode past a leper, he saw the face of Christ. And he stopped his horse, he got down, brought the man home with him, and helped him. Please don't leave this sermon today without some conviction that you can meet the needs of the hungry, the naked, the imprisoned, the sick, the hurting. I don't 
really care what your politics are, and yeah, you'll have to wrestle with, uh, if I give this homeless guy $20, is he just going to get beer? We don't have time to go into all those questions, but wrestle with them. We should be challenged to consider ways that we can help and pray for persecuted and hurting or imprisoned Christians. There are so many groups, the Red Cross, the YMCA, the Salvation Army, World Vision, Compassion International, Food for the Hungry, Prison Fellowship, Samaritan's Purse, I'm sure there's a lot more, that were all started in response to Jesus' teachings to love, serve, and help those who are hurting. But we can't leave it to those groups. We have to be involved. So the sheep are rewarded. And then in verses 41 through 46, Jesus speaks to the goats, those on his left. And we find out that those who don't follow Christ ignore his brothers. Verses 41 through 46. I hope that fits in your blank. Those who don't follow Christ ignore his brothers. Let me read those. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger and you did not welcome me. Naked and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison, you did not visit me. Then they also will answer saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister to you? Then he will answer them saying, Truly I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Now if we've been paying attention in the rest of the Gospel of Matthew, this section about the condemnation of the goats should not take us by surprise. Jesus has already told us in Matthew 7.21 that not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. And then in Chapter 16, verse 27, Jesus said, For the Son of Man is going to come with His angels in the glory of His Father, and then He will repay each person according to what He has done. I think it's really interesting that the three teaching stories in chapter 25, and the, today's sermon, the last two, if you were here, have a common thread in their message, and that is that God will judge people by what they didn't do. What they did as well, but think through. The, the, the first passage, the first parable, the foolish virgins are criticized for not being prepared. The second parable, the servant buries his talent, is severely criticized for not using it to gain more. And now... In this passage, the goats are condemned for failing to help others. 
I mean, you could say that there's a contrast there's in each passage where there's another group who fulfills the positive side, right? There were the virgins who were prepared and the men, the underseers who multiplied their talents and the sheep who did help others. But it's interesting that Jesus tells us our sins of omission, the things that we didn't do, are a real problem. And finally, we don't think we have a lot of time to talk about whether hell is eternal punishment. It seems to indicate that in this passage and in others. But theologians disagree on that. But for as much as we should be telling the world about Jesus' love and God's grace and the promises of heaven to win them to Christ, which we should, we cannot avoid the plain teaching of the Scriptures that there is a hell. And it is literal. And that there will be people that are sent there. Those who don't know Jesus must pay for their sins. I wish it were not so in my flesh. I grieve for those that I know who don't acknowledge the Lord and seem to be on that path. But when we take the Bible as inspired and inerrant and as Jesus as the source of our truth as we do, we cannot avoid this teaching. Please don't pretend there is no hell. If you want to read more on that, there's an excellent book by Francis Chan called Erasing Hell. Francis Chan, Erasing Hell. I want to spend the rest of our time wrestling with the implications of this passage and how this passage teaches us that we are saved or condemned, and whether it aligns with the rest of the Scriptures. Because it's very easy to read this by itself and say, wow, I guess it all just comes down to whether I volunteer to food pantry or get involved in a prison ministry. Because if I do that, I am set. My ticket is punched. I'm good to go. Jesus has to let me into heaven. And the, the traditional theological terms we're going to wrestle with is whether we are saved by our faith, placing our faith in the substitutionary, atoning work of Jesus and our beliefs, or if we are saved by what we do, saved by works. Because there's really not much here. There's nothing that Jesus says commending the sheep for their faith, is there? And he doesn't rebuke the goats for their lack of faith. It's pretty focused on what they do and have done or not done. So it seems like if we take this passage by itself, we are saved by our works. But not so fast. I've put Ephesians 2, 8 through 10 in your outline, or you can turn to it. For by grace you have been saved 
through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So, verses 8 and 9, saved through faith, not a result of works. So, so where do these good deeds, these, this visiting the sick and feeding the hungry, how, how does that play in? Well, verse 10 tells us that works come later. That God prepared or designed them for those who are saved. I need a little audience participation, congregational participation. I want you to repeat after me. I'm not saved by my works, but by Christ's works. I am not saved by my works, but by Christ's works. Thank you. Each of us is justified before God by faith alone, through His grace alone. Now, I'll never forget my youth pastor, Dan Burns, wonderful man of God. He and I were visiting with a student in that went to my church, uh, who thought he was a Christian, but really didn't know much about it. So we were talking through. And I remember at one point, I was sitting right next to him, Dan wrote out two equations. You have them in your bulletin. You pull that up on the PowerPoint. And Dan said, I've got, this kid was into math, so I think that's why he used this. I've got two equations for you. You pick which one you think most accurately represents how we're saved, according to the Bible. Faith plus works equals salvation, or faith equals salvation plus works. And this kid chose the first one, to which my youth pastor replied, I have new news for you, which was a really gentle way of saying, no, you're wrong. We have to understand the difference in those two equations to not draw some very poor conclusions out of this scripture text. Faith in Christ is salvation, and then we're created in Him for good works. Our works are evidence of our faith in Christ, of our conversion. The Holy Spirit changes our hearts, makes us new creations in Christ, alive to the things of the Spirit and now desiring. John 3.36 quotes Jesus saying this. You need to kind of look carefully. I've got this in your outline as well. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. So salvation by grace or by faith. And then the next part is, whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. So that seems works. But what he's saying is faith and works are never a contradiction. They are bound up together. Faith naturally leading to works. And works showing evidence of faith. 
I don't want true believers in Jesus Christ who have trusted in Jesus Christ alone for salvation to doubt their salvation because they think they haven't done enough to be considered a sheep. But at the same time, we who call ourselves Christians, people sitting in here, sitting in churches throughout the world, do well to wrestle with how much our works prove that we have faith. I'm going to take us back to our responsive reading, a couple of the verses from there, and this is also in your outline. James chapter 2, What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warm and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. I don't want a dead faith, which I think is no faith at all. The last thing I want you to do is to walk out of here saying, oh man, I passed that homeless guy the last time I was in D.C. I'm going to hell. Or, I've never visited anyone in prison. How can I still make it to heaven? But the real soul searching that I would love for you to do as a result of hearing this is asking yourself, does my life show evidence that God has changed my heart? That the Holy Spirit is moving me to exercise love and compassion on those around me. And that I can see Jesus in other people and treat them as better than myself. If you are truly unsure of your standing before God, of your spiritual condition, I would love to talk to you and find me afterwards, or one of the pastors or elders. Jesus not only physically helped all kinds of people when He was here on earth, but He comes to us who are spiritually dead, hungry and thirsty for true life, sick and in prison in our slavery to sin. And He heals us. He helps us. He died on the cross to free us. J.C. Ryle, bishop, commentator, writer, says, He that sits upon the throne in that great and dreadful day will be your Savior, your shepherd, your high priest, your elder brother, your friend. When you see Him, you will have no cause to be alarmed. You are the beloved of God if you are saved in Christ. You are righteous in His sight. And you will inherit eternal life. May your life show evidence. Let's pray. Father God, thank you 
that you didn't leave us wondering how it all ends. That you didn't leave us to guess about matters of faith and eternal security. Lord, you laid it out for us. Thank you for Jesus' teaching that we've been studying. And thank you for this passage, even though it is a hard teaching. But you tell us the truth because you love us. Pray that anyone here that don't, doesn't know you would take the truth of Scripture, the witness and testimony of who you are, and investigate it further and come to know you so that they would be counted among the sheep. And God, I praise you for all of those who know you, who are counted righteous in your sight because Jesus died for them and paid for their sin and that they are among the sheep. I pray that they would search their hearts and as they feel the Holy Spirit lead them to love and minister and be physically present in people's lives, May our church be characterized with people who love to help others. God, convict me in my own life for when I don't want to be inconvenienced, when I don't want to cancel something I'd rather do to go help someone or visit. But Lord... Thank you for your grace. Thank you for the love and the power to follow through and to be your ambassadors. Sent out into the world, we are the hands and feet of Jesus to love and to help and to serve. Thank you for this time. In Jesus' name, amen.